How many of you have ever purchased a present and wrapped it so early that you forgot what you were giving? Yeah, see, there's a number of companions in my suffering. Thank you. Well, the Gospel of Matthew was written to help Matthew's readers, including you and me, see who the gift is that was given to us at Christmas time. It's written to help us unwrap and see for ourselves who Jesus is. Pastor Josh, in the last couple of weeks, has, has shown us from the Gospel of Matthew that this gift is Emmanuel. He is the hope of God with us, that He's the shepherd king who protects and leads and provides and saves. And so this morning, I, I want us to tear away a little bit more of the wrapping paper. And in what is a very familiar story to most of us, look at it from a little different angle. Instead of spending a lot of time thinking about and talking about the wise men, the, the magi, I want us instead to look at a different aspect of the story. I want us to make a, a couple of observations, and as we make those observations, I want us to remind ourselves who the gift is. So we are looking in this series at, at the times when Matthew talks about this happened so that it might be fulfilled. And so we'll be seeing that this morning as well as we observe the story and think about it maybe a little bit differently this morning. The first observation that I would make is that there is an uneven conflict. There is an unfair fight in the story. It would be almost like saying, in this corner is Mike Tyson or Muhammad Ali or George Foreman, whoever you want to pick as a boxing great. And in this corner is the Portage Central High School boxing champion. That would be an unfair fight. That would be an uneven conflict. Or maybe, maybe you finally get your great wish and you are going to appear on Jeopardy. And as you walk out onto the stage, you look over, and one of the other contestants is Ken Jennings, the all-time Jeopardy! champion. That would be an uneven conflict. And that's what we have as we come to Matthew chapter 2. And so if you would take your Bibles or your electronic devices and turn there with me, we're going to pick up the story kind of in the, the middle, because Pastor Josh dealt with the early part of the wise men coming. And I want us to notice that in this corner is a powerful and evil king. We know his name because he's a part of the Christmas story. His name is Herod. And it is Herod versus a very overmatched opponent. Look with me at verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Beth Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. There's a lot that we could learn, a lot that we could say about the Magi here, but we're going to focus in especially on Herod. Herod is a powerful king. He's an evil king. He is brilliant, or at least he was 
But now he is slipping into paranoid insanity as his life draws toward a close. He is cruel. He is self-absorbed. During the Roman Civil War, he had initially sided with Mark Antony and Cleopatra, but when he saw which way the wind was blowing, he switched sides to support Octavian, who eventually won. And because of that, Herod then lobbied the Roman Senate to be appointed as king over the area of Palestine, and he got it. He came to Palestine and he built magnificent structures. He built an aqueduct that, that brought water into the city of Jerusalem. He built the city of Caesarea, naming it after Caesar to honor him. And of course, we all know he built the magnificent and beautiful temple in Jerusalem. That even the Jewish rabbis, who were not particularly Herod's friends, said no one has ever seen a beautiful building if they haven't seen Herod's temple. But all that Herod did was for the fame and the glory of Herod. He was power hungry. He was paranoid, protecting his throne at all costs. He drowned his brother-in-law, who he saw as a threat. He had his favorite wife killed because she felt like a threat. Three of his own sons were killed, one of them just days before Herod's own death because he dared to assert himself as the heir. And now, in Matthew 2, we saw it last week, he hears about these men from the east who've come asking, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And Herod's power base is being threatened. But he doesn't let on to that. Instead, he gathers the rabbis, the scribes, he asks them where the Messiah will be born. They tell him Bethlehem. And then he calls the wise men in secretly. And he ascertained, that is, he did a careful search from them what time the star appeared so he'd know when the baby was theoretically born. And then he tells them, you go and search diligently, which is actually the same root as ascertain. You go and do a careful search and find this baby, and when you've found him, bring me word so that I can come and worship him. He says the right things. In fact, they may have been very, the Magi, the wise men, may, may have been very impressed that he had already researched the question. He'd already brought in the scholars. They might have thought, wow, this guy is deeply religious. But Herod, we know because we know the story, they don't. Herod wants to know where the baby Jesus is so that he can kill him as a rival to his throne. But he deceives the Magi. He deceives the wise men. We know that because he doesn't send troops with them right away. He doesn't send somebody spying behind them to see where they go because he knows they have believed him. In fact, Matthew indicates that in the text. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. You might say, they said, well, that makes sense. Let's go find him and come back and tell Herod. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Notice, the star didn't lead them to Jerusalem. That's one of those mythological things that surrounds our Christmas lore, especially about the wise men. They saw the star when it rose. They saw it when they were in the east. They went to the logical place to find a Jewish king, Jerusalem, and then, once they heard what Herod had to say, they come out and there's the star. And it guides them to Bethlehem, 
to where Jesus is. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so they find the child, and, and they rejoice. But if you're reading this for the first time, you're thinking, oh no, they found him. Danger. Can Herod be far behind? There's a real threat because you have a powerful and evil king and deceived wise men, and in the other corner you have a peasant family with a baby. That's all they are. They moved out of the stable. They're now in a house. Jesus is is probably one to two years old now. He's called a child, not an infant or a baby. And they come and they bow before Jesus. And though we're not going to spend a lot of time on the wise men, we have to pause there for just a moment. They come into this simple Jewish home, a peasant home. We know they were poor because of the offerings they offer for Jesus' redemption in Jerusalem. And in that humble setting, in a Jewish child, these wise men see a universal king. They fall down before him in worship. They give themselves. They didn't worship Herod. They don't even worship Mary. They fall and worship Jesus because they see in him their king. And it's not because they were wise, though we call them the wise men. It's because God was at work in them. In fact, that's the only reason that I believe in Jesus as my Savior. It's the only reason you believe in him as your Savior if you've done that. It's not because you're so much smarter than everybody else. It's because God did a work of grace in your heart and in your life and drew you to himself just as surely as he brought these wise men to Jesus. And having given themselves, they now give their best gifts. Gifts worthy of a king, gold and frankincense and myrrh. But they are still unwittingly Herod's allies. They're still planning to go back and to tell him where the baby is. And so the conflict seems very one-sided. In this corner, you have a powerful, evil king. And in this corner, you have a peasant family with a baby. And the conflict is one-sided. Because in this corner, you also have the sovereign God and his plan. See, what's going on here is is not just a human drama. There is spiritual conflict going on here as well. And the sovereign God is in charge of everything that's happening. And Herod may think he's in charge. And the magi, the wise men, may be mixed up about what they should do. And Mary and Joseph may be concerned about what's happening. But God is in charge. In fact, as the story continues to unfold... It says that the wise men are warned in a dream not to return to Herod, and they departed to their own country by another way. See, God was in charge. I mean, when they saw the star and it guided them, I mean, He could have sent them on a wild goose chase out into the wilderness. But He led them right to where Jesus was. But then He warns them. And in warning them, they don't go back to Herod. And so that actually gives a period of time, we don't know how long, 
But some period of time while Herod waits for them to return and figures out they're not coming back for Mary and Joseph and Jesus to escape. And then the text continues. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. God warns Joseph to run to Egypt. Egypt's about 80 miles away, which is a long distance in that day, but not an undoable one. It is a place where there were at least a million Jews in that day, so easy for them to blend in and to hide. But he sends them there because I want you to notice, the Magi, the wise men, they don't have any idea what Herod has in mind. Mary and Joseph don't know about the threat. But God knows the mind and the plan of Herod. And he says, you need to run because Herod's going to try to destroy this child. God is in sovereign control of what's unfolding. So much so that Mary and Joseph, peasants, have the funds to travel and relocate because they've got those gifts from the Magi. And so God is providing for them. He's caring for them. So this really is an uneven conflict, but not in the way we initially think. Herod doesn't have a chance against a sovereign God and his plan. And so that leads us to the first reminder as we unwrap our gift this morning. And that is that God's great plan of redemption cannot be thwarted by evil. That's part of what Matthew is is explaining to us in these first two chapters. As he keeps bringing up the word fulfill, this was done to fulfill, this was done to fulfill, he's saying God's plan is being worked out. Whether people realize they're working out God's plan or they think they're opposing God's plan, God's plan is being worked out. It is happening. It is unstoppable. And ironically, by the end of Matthew chapter 2, it's not Jesus who's dead, it's Herod. Because God's plan unfolds and His plan of redemption can't be thwarted by evil. That's not the way it seems at times in chapter 2. But God is at work. And if God could orchestrate all of those events, global events, for His plan, why do you and I think that He can't handle the events of our lives? Why do we think that that interpersonal conflict we're going through is beyond his ability to handle or that illness that we're experiencing, those health challenges or that job loss or those financial dealings or a loved one that's near death or on the global scale, why do we think the wars and the things that are happening are out of God's control? They're not. We don't always understand what God is doing. Mary and Joseph probably didn't understand what God was doing. But God's great plan of redemption cannot be thwarted by evil. Bringing that down just into a personal level for us as a church, we we have been going through a time of transition, and it's gone well. And in it, we have and need to continue to trust God, to realize that as Pastor Josh talked about last week, there is a chief shepherd who loves Berean more than I do and more than you do and more than Pastor Josh does. And his sovereign, redemptive plan is being carried out. It's being worked out. We can trust him. So the story continues on. 
In verse 14, we read this, Then he, that is Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill, here's our fulfill word for this week, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Here's the second observation. There's an unusual prophecy here. It's not like the earlier prophecies we can look at and see how what God said in the Old Testament and how it flows into the New Testament. In fact, what we have here is a problematic passage. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I was kidding Pastor Josh that as he laid out this series, he gave me the two toughest passages to deal with. I said, thanks a lot. But he knew today he was going to be at a wedding in Indiana that he'd committed to before he was here as pastor. So it was kind of logical, but still had to give him a hard time about it. It is a problematic passage. There's a couple of problems. One of them is pretty easy to solve. The first problem is that Matthew talks about, out of Egypt I called my son, but in the context of the story, they're not coming out of Egypt, they're going into Egypt. So why didn't he save this for later? They won't come out of Egypt until later on in the chapter. But you see, the, the point is that Matthew wants to develop a theme here that's different from the theme he's going to develop later on in the chapter, in verses 19 and 20. And the Lord willing, we'll look at that theme, that focus, on the 31st of this month. Notice, he, he not only jumps ahead in talking about coming out of Egypt, but he jumps ahead and talks about the death of Herod which hasn't taken place yet. There's a sense in which he is doing a foreshadowing, a jumping ahead in time, and that's not unusual. You've seen it. Maybe you sit down to watch your favorite television program, and the commercial ends, and it starts with all this drama going on, and the main characters are in jeopardy, and you're thinking, wait a minute, what did I miss? Why is all this happening? And after the scene unfolds for a minute or two, it stops and then it says 24 hours earlier and it gives you the background to why you just saw that scene. And so Matthew, in a sense, is saying one or two years earlier because that's about how long they were in Egypt. And so he focuses in on a different theme that he wants to develop by talking about, especially out of Egypt, I've called my son. So that's the easy problem to solve. The more difficult problem to solve is Hosea 11.1. 1. Because this is about Israel's historic deliverance from Egypt. It's not strictly a prophecy. So I want you to pretend for a minute, I know it's hard, but pretend that you have never read Matthew. You don't know the Christmas story. And you are reading through the Old Testament and you come to Hosea 11.1 1, and you read, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. How many of you would say, oh, that's about Messiah Jesus? Good. I was going to tell you, put your hand down. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> no Jew reading those verses would have said, oh, that's a messianic prophecy. Until Matthew begins to unfold it for us. So what is happening here? What is it that Matthew is doing? 
If you remember back when Pastor Josh began the series, he talked about typology and how things can foreshadow other things. We might even say, in a sense, there's an analogy going on here. And so what what Matthew wants us to see is a powerful picture of who this child is, of who our gift is. And so he's going to talk, having introduced us to the idea of Israel being called out of Egypt, he's going to want us to focus not just here, we're going to kind of thematically think about the the book of Matthew, about the analogy between Israel and Jesus. And it starts with the fact that Israel went down to Egypt and was protected by Joseph. You remember the story from Genesis. This Joseph is the son of Jacob, and he ends up in Egypt, and second most powerful man, and the family comes down there, and they're provided for. And maybe it was the the, the Joseph name that caused Matthew to begin to kind of think of these things, and the Holy Spirit, under as he inspires Matthew, uses that. Because Israel went down to Egypt and was protected by Joseph. Now, Jesus is taken to Egypt for protection by another, Joseph. And so, there they will be safe from Herod because Egypt is out of Herod's realm, and with all those other Jews there, they'll blend in well. Israel is brought up by God out of Egypt in the Exodus. In fact, just as an aside, in the Exodus story, you have Pharaoh killing male babies, and in this story you have Herod playing the part of Pharaoh in killing male babies in Bethlehem. So there's a number of parallels that are there. Jesus, Matthew wants us to understand, and he'll unfold this through the rest of his gospel, a new exodus is about to happen through him, and this will be an exodus not out of Egypt, but an exodus out of bondage to sin. And Matthew will develop that in his gospel. What he's saying is there is a repeating pattern here of God's great deliverance, of God's redemption. And what we saw in Israel, now Jesus is fulfilling. This new exodus will be led by a greater redeemer than Moses. It will be led by God with us, Emmanuel. It will be led by the shepherd king. Matthew, I think, wants us all to to remember that Israel, coming out of Egypt, passed through the Red Sea, and then they spent 40 years failing in the wilderness. In Matthew 3 and then in Matthew 4, Jesus is baptized. In fact, He says to John, I need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then in chapter 4, He spends 40 days of victory over temptation in the wilderness. He's fulfilling the redemptive picture of God. And Matthew is triggering all of this simply by his quotation from Hosea 11.1. Israel is led to Mount Sinai where God establishes the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant. Jesus, as Matthew will show us later, established the new covenant in his blood on Mount Calvary, fulfilling the picture there. Jesus is filling up the pattern and the picture of God's redemptive history. That's why in chapter 5, Jesus will say, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to fill them up, to fulfill all the picture, all the analogy 
of those Old Testament scenes. Israel is a very disobedient son. See, a good Jew would have read Matthew's quote, out of Egypt I've called my son, and known what you and I wouldn't. We tend to read and say, okay, it's Ma- that's Hosea 11.1, but Matthew wants us to see the whole of, if not all of Hosea, certainly all of Hosea 11. So look at a few of those verses. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning, er, and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. Strong contrasting picture because Jesus is the completely obedient son. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is all that Israel was supposed to be. In fact, he's all that humanity was supposed to be. He's the second and better Adam, as we sang a few moments ago. And so in the Gospel of Matthew, you find over and over again this theme of Jesus being the Son of God, the Son with a capital S. The demons say, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? The disciples, after Jesus calms the storm, say, truly you are the Son of God. Simon Peter, when Jesus questions, who do you say that I am, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The centurion at the cross says, truly, this was the Son of God. And Jesus, wrapping up the gospel, says, go and make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And maybe most pertinent to our thought of Him as the obedient Son, after His baptism in Matthew 3, God speaks and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And at the transfiguration in chapter 17, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He's the obedient son in contrast with the disobedient son, Israel. And Israel, God's disobedient son, God judges their sin. Though the book of Hosea is also about how he will someday restore them. That's not our focus this morning. Our focus is on His judgment. The sword, Hosea writes, shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. You can read the rest of Hosea 11 where God says, but I will eventually restore them. But they were the disobedient son who who were being punished for their own sins. And Jesus, the obedient son, Matthew shows us how God judges our sin, my sin, your sin in him. He has no sin. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, the obedient Son, pays the price for my disobedience and your disobedience. And so that leads us to the second reminder as we unwrap our gift this morning. Our gift is God's great Redeemer who rescues us from bondage to sin. He was born, we celebrate that at this time of the year. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross, not because He was the disobedient sons, but because we are disobedient. 
and He rose again to rescue, to redeem us. When our children were little, one day we heard one of them singing, and we kind of listened in, and this is what we heard. We wish you a Merry Christmas, we wish you a Merry Christmas, we wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New You. He had the words wrong, but he had the theology right. Because of Christmas, there can be a new you and a new me, and we can be transformed from disobedient children to obedient sons and daughters of God because we have a great Redeemer The Magi coming from the east and Jesus coming up out of Egypt shows that He's the Redeemer for all people, not just Jews, but all people, including you, if you've never trusted Christ as Savior. And so we unwrap the gift and we see that He is our great Redeemer, God's great Redeemer who carries out God's unstoppable plan of redemption and He does it for you and for me. Or to put it another way, He triumphs over evil in this world and evil in our lives. We can trust Him. So have you ever trusted Him as Savior? Have you ever said, I I know I'm a sinner, I know I can't reach right relationship with God in my own self, I need a Savior, I need a Redeemer, His name's Jesus. If you've never trusted Him before you leave this morning, please talk to me or one of the other pastors or that friend that brought you. If you have trusted Him, then the the message of the story is that you can still trust Him because His plan is unstoppable. It is being worked out and He is triumphing over the evil in this world and someday He will return and that will be evident. Warren Wearsby tells a story of Two ladies who were in a very, very posh, upscale restaurant eating a meal. And a friend saw them and came and said, hey, what's the occasion? You're here celebrating. And the one lady said, oh, we're here to celebrate the birth of my son. And the friend looked around and said, but where is he? She said, well, you didn't think I'd bring him here, do you? He'd ruin everything. (laughs) That's the way a lot of people treat Christmas. Let's have a big celebration, but let's not make Jesus part of it. But you can't really celebrate Christmas without Jesus. Because you see, He is God's great Redeemer. Would you pray with me? Father, we sang earlier that we who are unworthy, we who are broken, we who have nothing can come to you not in our own strength and not in our own ability and not in our own righteousness, but only in Christ. Thank you for sending him. Thank you for his death on the cross for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you to remain seated for just a minute. The uh, Constitution requires that I do this. Probably should have changed it when we were changing the Constitution. But I need to read you a letter that I don't really want to read to you, but I'm going to. Dear brothers and sisters of Berean, this letter comes as no surprise as we've been talking about this for over a year. Still, an official letter must be written, and so here it is. It is with a mixture of joy and sadness, gratitude and grief, that I officially announce my resignation as lead pastor of Berean Baptist Church of Portage, Michigan, 
effective December 31st, 2023. I want to express my profound gratitude to each member of our church family. The love, support, and fellowship Peggy and I have enjoyed here over these 14 and a half years have been nothing short of extraordinary and a true blessing from God. It's been an honor and a privilege to serve as your pastor, and I am deeply thankful for the relationships that we have built and the work God has done here. Countless memories flood in as I joyfully think of our Berean family, from baptisms to weddings, worship services to community outreach events, celebratory meals and poignant memorial services. Each moment has been a testimony to the unity, faith, and warmth of Berean. I'm confident that under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Pastor Josh will lead you well into the amazing future God has for Berean. Continue to thrive and to grow, radiating God's love to all who enter these doors. And then just as an aside that's not part of the letter, I am thrilled with how the transition has gone. I am thrilled with who Pastor Josh is and what he brings to the table for ministry here. So I want to encourage you to respect him and love him and support him as you have me and want to encourage you to give him time to settle in and to learn who you are, uh, but love him well as you have Peggy and me. Back to the letter. I want to express my appreciation to the pastoral staff, Pastor Jim, Pastor Steve, Pastor Ryan, and the other pastors who have been here in my tenure. I want to express my appreciation to the office personnel, to Lynn and Karen and Aaron and Joe and some of those who came before them, to the many men who have served and are serving as deacons, and to all the volunteers, which is most of you, uh, who have worked tirelessly to make our church a welcoming, nurturing family. Your dedication and commitment to the Lord and to developing fully devoted followers of Christ for the glory of God has been a huge blessing. Well, I'm this is where I had problems in the first service, too. While I'm stepping down from my pastoral role, please know that my heart and Peggy's will forever be connected to this church and its loving congregation. We look forward to return visits, and we invite you to visit us. Over these final weeks of 2023, I will continue to work closely with Pastor Josh and the other pastors to ensure a smooth transition. I have full confidence in their ability to lead Berean into an exciting and vibrant future. Thank you again for the privilege of serving as your pastor. I am excited about the opportunities that retirement or redeployment bring, but I will miss the weekly fellowship and the joy of ministering alongside such a loving community. May God continue to bless each of you and Berean abundantly. Ron.